Well, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Professor James Hughes. I'm in the government department here at LSE, and uh, I'd like to welcome you to this uh, discussion this evening, which is a joint venture between the European Institute at LSE and Sciences Po, uh, with funding from the French funding support from the French Embassy, and also the Shapiro Public Lecture Series at LSE. Our subject this evening is Georgia. Has Russia, has Europe let Russia off the hook? Um, our speakers uh, on my left, first of all, are um, Salome Surabishvili, who is associate professor at Sciences Po, Paris, and a former foreign minister of Georgia, uh, nominated in 2004 by President Saakashvili and she served as Foreign Minister of Georgia in 2004 to 2005, having been French ambassador in Tbilisi. Uh, she is a former uh, career diplomat for the French Foreign Service. Um, she has now entered Georgian politics um, as a leading figure in the opposition to President Saakashvili, and is the, uh, one of the leading figures in the uh, opposition movement, The Way of Georgia, she is also the author of a recent book, uh, Les Cicatrices des Nations, The Scars of Nations, uh, which is published this year. On my right is Dr. Sabine uh, Freiser, who is uh, a graduate of LSE. Uh, she did her PhD in social policy department here at LSE in 2000, 2004. Uh, her research focused on the role of NGOs in Bosnia and Tajikistan. Um, she is now the Europe Program Director of the International Crisis Group, based in Brussels. Uh, both speakers uh, ha will speak for around 20-25 minutes, and then that will leave us plenty of time for questions. We should aim to finish close to 8 o'clock. Right, the subject uh, of this evening's event is uh, obviously um, very controversial. We're looking at the events of last August, uh, the war between Russia and Georgia over the separatist regions of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And there are many outstanding controversies um, arising from this war. It was a long-standing standoff between Russia and Georgia uh, and Europe and the United States over the status of these separatist regions. Um, and we hope that the speakers will help us resolve by the end of the proceedings some of the main controversies, including uh, such issues as who was the aggressor, the aggressor um, uh, how we evaluate the response of Europe and the United States to the crisis, and indeed what are the consequences of the war for the separatist regions, for Georgia itself, for Georgian politics, the future of Georgia, and for the capacity of Europe and the United States to deal with uh, the resurgence of Russian power. So I think I will pass over to our first speaker, Salome uh, Surabashki. Um, uh, Thank you. You may stand at the podium if you wish. It's up to you. Yeah, maybe it's better for the people on the other side. I will take all my... Thank you very much. Uh, and 
we'll uh, share um, the floor with, with Sabine, and we've agreed that she will talk more uh, about the EU position uh, towards the Georgia-Russian um, conflict confrontation uh, and the situation thereafter. And uh, I will talk uh, on the situation between Georgia and Russia, starting, of course, uh, with the war. Uh, for things to be clear, and it has just been said, uh, I am now uh, one of the leaders of the Georgian opposition, uh, one of the leaders of the opposition uh, which, uh, just before uh, I left Georgia a few days ago, has uh, united on one question, which is to demand the departure of the President Saakashvili for, uh, because of his responsibility in uh, dragging Georgia into such a, a tragedy. Uh, and I think that gives the tone uh, when we look back uh, to what happened uh, during the war uh, in the month of August. At that time, I just uh, left Georgia on the morning uh, of that day, and I spent the next three weeks uh, in France and in Europe, uh, where uh, I restrained myself of not talking about the question uh, of the responsibilities in the war because I didn't want to play into the hands of uh, uh, the Russian propaganda that, which was at that time very active uh, to place all the responsibility on Georgia and that clearly was not uh, in Georgia's interests uh, and I saw that it was not appropriate for me to make any uh, comment on that. Uh, now this time is over uh, and I think that everybody needs the truth uh, both in Georgia and outside of Georgia. Uh, and clearly for the war, uh, there is mutual responsibility. If one starts with, uh, with Russia, uh, Russia has a major responsibility because it has never stopped, uh, and that goes back to the time when I was a minister and we, when we were in a process of trying to normalize, if that's possible, the relations between uh, Georgia and Russia. And in fact, we managed to have an agreement on the withdrawal of the Russian military bases. So it says a little bit about uh, the willingness that existed at that time from Russia to try to test uh, some form of more normal relations. Uh, even at that time, and despite that attempt, uh, there was a continuous, uh, what uh, has been called a double standards policy. Uh, which is to say that already at that time, that means 2005, 2004, 2005, the policy of passportization had begun. Uh, the policy of Russian officials uh, going to South Ossetia or to Abkhazia without asking for the proper visas, uh, buying uh, their land uh, or um, any resources that they could in those two entities uh, without going through the capital, all of that contradicted the recognition of the Georgian territorial integrity and sovereignty, which was at the core of all the agreements uh, to which Russia was a party. Uh, so this double standard policy uh, was really taken by Georgia as it's understandable for a small country uh, that is a neighbor to Russia as a provocation, a constant provocation that was only accentuated 
by what Russia did to uh, beef up uh, and that went against uh, the military, the uh, peace agreements, uh, to beef up the military uh, armaments and the armies, which uh, in fact were forbidden, the armies of the two separatist entities, uh, including the fact of nominating, for instance, uh, generals or ministers of defense in the two entities that were uh, Russians. So there was a, a continuous uh, policy of, uh, of Russia uh, to uh, take advantage of the situation and to really push uh, the separatists, including the meetings uh, that were taking place in Moscow very regularly uh, of all the separatist leaders from South Ossetia, Abkhazia, but also uh, Karabakh that were meeting uh, in an official form uh, that was close to a recognition of a status in, uh, in Moscow. Uh, that being said, uh, and that's very important because it gives a background to everything that happened, uh, Georgia on its side uh, did a number of things that uh, created also the background for what happened during the month of August. Uh, which was a very aggressive rhetoric uh, against Russia, which is rather strange when you're a small country living side by side with this uh, big uh, and uh, threatening neighbor. Uh, and also a very uh, aggressive policy towards the two separatist entities that didn't match uh, the declared policy uh, of uh, looking for a peaceful solution that was the solution that together with our European and American partners, we uh, were trying to uh, seek for solving these uh, separatist problems. Uh, and indeed, not only uh, military rhetoric, but uh, in 2007, uh, Georgia's budget, uh, one-fourth of the spending of the budget was military spending and acquisition of armaments. Uh, that's when uh, one can ask some question, why is it that the, uh, that the question I ask at least, why is it that the Western supporters of the uh, Georgian government did not ask some question and make some serious statements at that time to say, well, what are you planning to do with the armaments that you're buying to either uh, the uh, countries of uh, Europe, the old Central European countries, or more lately to Israel. Uh, and uh, that led us up to the situation that we get in uh, August, uh, in which, uh, again, we find that both parties have a very serious interest to get into a confrontation. Uh, Russia uh, has a very strong interest to get into the confrontation, uh, to show uh, that uh, when it uh, is saying that it's against uh, NATO integration for Georgia, uh, that has to be taken, be taken seriously, uh, that uh, Russia counts uh, still, uh, and there is a clearly a desire on the Russian side to show strength and to show power and to be respected for what it can be respected, which is strength and power. Uh, and when we move into the war, uh, that is very clearly seen because it's a war uh, of uh, the last century that we will see during the months of August. Nobody uh, really uh, needed the uh, Russian tanks to be rolling uh, in uh, South Ossetia and Georgia. There were many other means uh, to get the same military results, but this old-fashioned way 
uh, of doing business. Uh, but the old-fashioned way uh, worked very well because it remembered and reminded uh, all the populations of the old Soviet space uh, that Russia is still very powerful and that psychological instrument worked perfectly well for Georgia, but not only for Georgia. It worked for Azerbaijan uh, and uh, probably others, including uh, Ukraine. Uh, so those were basically the Russian aims. Teach a lesson to Saakashvili that clearly Putin doesn't like much. Uh, teach a lesson to this uh, independent Georgia that has been going a bit too much on its own way uh, and show that it can still do uh, things on its own, that it counts, that it's powerful. And in fact, Russia decided to make that demonstration in the one place where it can still do it. Uh, because clearly, and that didn't make uh, any doubt to anybody except maybe Saakashvili, uh, it was not very difficult for Russia to beat the Georgian army, uh, and the odds were very much in favor uh, of uh, Russia in that case. Uh, and it's not very clear whether there was any other uh, test case that Russia could have successfully passed uh, and maybe uh, Georgia, uh, and I hope that's the case, uh, and that's a claim I would make, Georgia is the last of the Russian uh, invasions of that type, the last one that this Russia can uh, have uh, and carry through successfully, because after all, the Russian army is no longer a very uh, strong army and a very modern and a very professional army. It can still defeat the Georgian army, but that's about it. Uh, and maybe uh, the uh, war in Georgia was the war that was made not to have to go to war uh, in Ukraine because that's not very clearly a war that Russia can uh, win if it were uh, to have a war in a classical way uh, with Ukraine which has a different type of army uh, and has a different uh, habit of defending itself uh, than, uh, than Georgia as was shown during the last uh, uh, Second World War. So uh, we went to war, but there was also responsibility very clearly of Georgia. Uh, again, if we want to speak the truth, it's very clear for everybody, and it was clear from the very beginning, uh, from the day when I left uh, Georgia during that summer, that the aggression on that day was carried by Georgia. Uh, there is some uh, doubt or questions uh, to what happened and why was it that Georgia took that risk? Uh, was there uh, any side uh, talks, discussion, agreement with the Russians at some level, uh, with the military or a higher up? Nobody knows. Uh, but there are clearly many signs to the fact uh, that uh, Georgian authorities thought that uh, the Russians would look the other way. Uh, and would let the Georgians have, uh, at the beginning at least, a small victory. Uh, that uh, is something very curious. That doesn't answer all the questions, because if that's the case, then the next question should be asked, why is it that the Georgian government can trust uh, any Russian authority in such a deal? Uh, what explains that? I don't have uh, the answer, but there are many uh, declarations that were made by some authorities uh, after the war that tend uh, to uh, prove uh, that there was something of that kind. The Vice Minister of Defense declared a few days after the war, on the 15th of August, uh, that uh, he was very surprised by the reaction of the Russians. Uh, 
uh, well, I was not surprised, and the Georgian population was not surprised. So if he was surprised, it means that he was expecting something different. And why was he expecting something different? Uh, the uh, clarity on what happened during that war uh, is something that uh, will come in the coming uh, months and years, maybe will come from the EU Commission that has been set uh, to study uh, the long-term, medium-term, and the short-term uh, causes to this uh, war. Clearly, clarity could not come from the commission that was set by the Georgian parliament but it, because it was completely uh, a controlled commission uh, under the uh, authorities' uh, instructions. So there was no uh, revelation in this commission except for one uh, that was the declarations of the uh, Georgian ambassador uh, to uh, Moscow during the war that were not expected, those declarations, and uh, he made a claim for the fact that there was connivance between Georgia and Russia to go to this war and mutual interest into the war. Uh, two non-democratic regimes uh, went to, uh, to war, uh, one with the other. Uh, clearly also for Georgia, as a non-democratic regime, there was an internal uh, interest into the war, uh, which showed very much after the war, that was to remobilize the population around uh, a government that had lost lots of its legitimacy over the past months and the uh, internal uh, turmoil that uh, started in November of 2007 and went on up to the spring. Uh, in summer, there was not much left uh, to the Saakashvili government to rebuild its image uh, inside and outside, but to become uh, a victim uh, of the Russians, which is something that works quite well, both in Georgia and outside of Georgia. Uh, now, five months after the war, where uh, do we stand? Uh, has Russia violated or respected uh, the agreements that were concluded with uh, uh, the European Union. Uh, was there anything else that the European Union could do is probably a question that uh, we uh, will try to answer uh, after. I will let first uh, Sabine uh, say what she has to say to that and will give you my uh, impression. Uh, for uh, what Russia has done uh, after the war, I think that Russia has both uh, respected and violated uh, the agreements. It has respected partly. Uh, clearly, the uh, Russian aggression was uh, stopped, uh, didn't reach uh, Tbilisi. Uh, I think there, too, there, was, there is an explanation. Uh, I think the uh, original, and there were Russian plans of aggression, even if Georgia started the actual military phase of this confrontation, uh, there was a, a plan uh, of Russian aggression that existed before. Uh, there was even, there were probably two plans, one for Abkhazia and one for South Ossetia, and finally it was played on South Ossetia. Uh, but I think that the plan was only to teach a lesson uh, to uh, Saakashvili in South Ossetia. I don't think it was a plan originally to go onto the rest of the Georgian territory. Uh, I think it might have happened because uh, the uh, harsh reaction uh, from the United States that was expected uh, by the Russians didn't come at that time, and there was a very uh, heavy silence from uh, the American administration for the three first days after the beginning of the uh, Russian uh, rollback. 
Uh, and that was due to the fact that the Americans had the feeling uh, that they had warned and warned and warned uh, the Georgian authorities. Uh, they had a feeling they were not listened. Uh, and so they were showing their uh, dissatisfaction with the Georgian authorities by just uh, keeping silent. Uh, and in fact, the declaration of uh, President Bush from Pekin saying that uh, he was recognizing Georgian sovereignty was almost uh, an acceptance of the, of the fact. Uh, and that probably took the Russians by surprise and explains that the Russian military just was going on and on uh, and probably wouldn't have stopped uh, until Tbilisi had it not been uh, for the coincidence uh, uh, and uh, coming to Moscow of uh, President Sarkozy, uh, which I think for everyone was, uh, was the right moment, even maybe for the Russians, uh, because I'm not sure that they knew what they were going to do with an occupied uh, capital of an independent state. Uh, I'm not sure that they had plans for that part uh, and that it was not something that uh, just happened by the military inertia of the uh, Russian army that clearly was very happy to do what it was doing. Uh, now, uh, what they respected was that, to stop the aggression before uh, Tbilisi, to uh, withdraw from the rest of the Georgian territory uh, according to the timetable, from what is now called, and I dislike very much this uh, wording, uh, Georgia proper, because I don't know what that means, uh, but we still understand what it, uh, what it means. It has violated uh, the agreements uh, on uh, the uh, newly occupied territories, which is it has not left the territories that were occupied uh, after August 7, uh, which is Valley of Kodori, uh, the uh, Valley of uh, Liachvi on South Ossetia part, uh, and Achalgori. Uh, that uh, is a serious concern, uh, and that's a question that should be asked. But that is a result of ambiguity on uh, many sides. Uh, it's certainly on the part of the EU lack of knowledge, uh, not knowing what uh, was behind uh, uh, those territories, what was really covered by the mention of 7th of August, uh, and probably uh, partly uh, constructive ambiguity, which is that uh, you ask only what you think that you can get, and uh, nobody was expecting that the Russians at that point were ready to uh, go back from all the territories they had occupied. Uh, on the part of Russia, it was assertive ambiguity, uh, they knew exactly what they wanted, and they wanted to get back uh, to the original border of the Soviet uh, autonomies. And that's what they did. Uh, what is today occupied by the Russian troops corresponds exactly with the borders of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, as defined at the time of Stalin. Uh, and as rejected since then. These were not the borders of the conflict zones, but that's something that I guess the EU negotiators did not know when they went to Moscow. Um, and the Russians knew that this was not going to be challenged by force. We all know that, that nobody was going to challenge anything by force. Uh, but there was there too responsibility of uh, Georgia, which I call destructive ambiguity, uh, because Georgia, instead of claiming and instead of explaining to everybody that there was a very big difference between 
the borders of the conflict zone and the borders of the <coughs> Soviet uh, autonomies, didn't say anything and pretended that the uh, aim was to uh, have Russia withdraw from all the territories of the conflict zones back uh, to the borders of uh, Georgia with, uh, with Russia, which clearly was at that time unreachable. Uh, and there is a very good explanation why Georgia did not try to get what it could get, which was the return of Kodori Valley, Akhalgori, uh, Liakhui Valley, which were the, uh, after August 7, occupied territories, because it is Georgia Saakashvili government uh, that uh, recognized those Soviet borders for the first time since Georgian independence uh, when it tried to set up the uh, Sanakoev separatist government, which was a very strange and a very Primakov-like scheme. Uh, and that, uh, of course, turned back on us because then it was very difficult to uh, proclaim that these borders were completely illegitimate and had no standing of their own. Uh, so we are in a situation where many things are unclear, and it continued with Geneva. Uh, in Geneva, the Russians, of course, didn't want anything because they have everything. They uh, hold the territories. Uh, why they, should they look for a result in Geneva where they have nothing to get, get in exchange for any concession? Uh, but the Georgians in Geneva didn't want anything either. Uh, they were not again in Geneva claiming, not even the Kodori Valley, uh, which they could have claimed because in Abkhazia there was no war and there was no reason to see uh, an additional territory hijacked uh, by the Russians and the Abkhaz. But again, the uh, Georgian ideological stand for Geneva was we are looking for the Russians to leave everything. Uh, and if they don't leave everything, if we do not recover the whole of the uh, separatist uh, territories, uh, then what does Geneva mean? We don't need Geneva. Uh, and the position of the EU uh, looking at that was uh, finally, well, if those two parties uh, are not looking to any serious negotiation and result, why should we be the only one to, to try to do, uh, to do something? And now, and I'm going to conclude because I know that I'm a bit uh, late, but then I will answer the questions. And now, where are the relations between Russia and, and Georgia? Well, again, very strange. Uh, what has happened just the last week before uh, uh, I left uh, Georgia uh, is something that, uh, to me, is uh, completely ununderstandable. Or if I understand it well, uh, then it's outrageous. Uh, Georgian government and Russian government uh, have together negotiated uh, a deal over the Anguri Dam, which controls about half of the electricity of Georgia, which is set at the border of Abkhazia and Georgia, uh, which was the project that was co-managed by Georgians and Abkhazians despite wars, despite everything, up to last uh, summer. Uh, so it was the example that we were all using when we were saying, well, there is a peaceful solution that is possible with Aprasia, and the model is Nguri, the way we deal with them uh, to uh, co-share Nguri. Well, on Nguri, uh, the Georgian government and the Russian government that are supposed to hate the guts of each other uh, managed to make a deal uh, by which uh, it becomes a co-management of Russia and Georgia over the dam and the electricity that is produced. Uh, and that means that the Georgian government is basically telling the Abkhazians uh, to go and get their electricity in Moscow 
from Moscow uh, and the electricity that in fact is uh, together with Georgia, uh, half at least uh, is something that belongs to the Abkhazians. Uh, and so we are sending them into the arms of the Russians for a reason that I uh, have a very, very hard time to, to get. Uh, and we are in this uh, very strange situation where we are at war with Russia. The official rhetoric is still that we are at war, that the war might start tomorrow morning, the day after, and that's what we hear daily uh, in Georgia. Of course, a very strong language uh, towards the, the Russian authorities, and on the other side, we can hear uh, the same thing. So at that, they are both, both governments very good. Uh, at making uh, very high-toned rhetorics against each other. Uh, but uh, at other levels, the deals that are going on, uh, the Russians are buying and buying in Georgia. Uh, there do doesn't seem that uh, the uh, actual government is very much uh, caring uh, about keeping Georgian resources for future uh, independence. Uh, and that is what uh, uh, leads uh, me and other uh, leaders of the opposition to think that uh, it's about time that we get rid of this government and of uh, President Saakashvili with uh, too many uh, incoherences uh, and have a government uh, that will do what it declares, uh, maybe be in tonality less aggressive to uh, Russia, but maybe try to defend uh, more in depth what are the remnants of Georgian independence. Thank you. Our next speaker, Sabine Fraser, is going to focus more on the external aspects of the crisis. Uh, just a second. Mars, was our map sent in? Yeah. But up on the screen? Well, Jim, thank you very much for, for your kind introduction, and thank you very much for having me here tonight. Of course, as an LSC alum, it's quite an honor and a privilege to be back. And um, I'll try to keep my remarks relatively short, because I know the LSC tradition of having nice, feisty discussions in this room, so I hope that we will have that um, a little bit later. Um, I just wanted to actually maybe already start that and, and say one thing. Um, in reaction to uh, Salome's presentation. Um, one thing just on the point of why Russia went where it did in Georgia. Um, I agree with her that most Georgian high-level authorities thought that Russia would never go into territory outside of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Um, I also heard that very frequently from high-level officials. They always said, well, you know, they're not going to go beyond South Ossetia. But that was something that never made any sense to me. Um, it was, pers to me, quite clear that if Russia started, they would want to go further. And I think that the main, um, strategic op, uh, the main strategic goal that they had was to destroy two military bases which were in Georgia. So the military base in Gori, um, which is here, and in Sanaki, which is around here. Um, those are two new military bases that were constructed under President Saakashvili, which were supposedly NATO standard. And that is also part of the, the essence of this conflict, is also trying to push back NATO and trying to ensure that Georgia does not join NATO anytime soon. Um, so to me, that was always very much uh, one of the strategic objectives of Russia. So it was very understandable that they went where they did, and they didn't go much beyond that. Now, I'm going to focus very much in my presentation on the European Union's role. Um, and I have to say that 
In many ways, I think the European Union did quite a remarkable thing um, in the, the, the days after the start of the conflict and even in the months after the conflict. Um, let, let's remember that this is really perhaps the, this is really the first time that the European Union intervenes directly in an international conflict as a mediator. Um, the, of course, the, the French presidency played a very important role. And here, in, in large part, it was also the personalities of President uh, Sarkozy and Foreign Minister Kouchner. Um, it was them personally who, who drove uh, a lot of this momentum, um, able to get a, a ceasefire of sorts in five days, um, and then to, to follow up with a, with a second agreement uh, a few weeks later. So I think this, this is quite remarkable, the, the intervention that they were able to do, um, especially when you see the paralysis that existed in New York at the Security Council or in Vienna um, at the OSCE. Um, also, if we look at the positives, what we can say is that um, another very positive thing was the very quick decision by the European Union to deploy an EU uh, monitoring mission and to appoint a new EU special representative. The monitoring mission deployed in three weeks. If you compare the monitoring mission in Kosovo, which has taken about two years to deploy, this is really uh, quite a significant feat that they were able to get the people on the ground um, so quickly and so effectively. Um, the, the, um, in, in addition to that, really, this EU monitoring mission, I think by all observers, um, has been quite a successful mission to date. Um, it is staffed by, by very experienced people, um, seconded from 22 member states. Um, and they, they have been, I think, they are respected throughout um, Georgia for the work that they have been doing. Um, in addition to that, of course, what we had in October was a large-scale donors conference where an incredible 4.5 billion U.S. dollars um, were allocated to Georgia. And um, in, on a more political level, um, of course, what Russia would have liked is to see states recognize South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And partially, to some extent, um, through, because of European diplomacy, um, there was no, there's been basically no serious recognition by other states. So Europe obviously had a very clear line on this, but also I think that European Union member states you know, also talked to some of their allies um, to strongly recommend to them not to recognize um, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And even here when we think about Belarus, there's also some games going on between Belarus's relationship with Russia and with the European Union, because everybody really expected that Belarus would be the first state to recognize South Ossetia and Abkhazia um, after, after Russia. Um, finally, we have the Geneva talks, which uh, Salome alluded to, which are a new uh, negotiation mechanism um, where the EU is the, the main mediator, um, together with the UN and the OSCE, and Russia has taken a, a, a seat backwards, and they're basically one of the participants, but not the mediators. So that is also quite a new role for the European Union to be mediating with Russia as, 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 a, as a participant and not um, as an equal. Um, however, of course, what has been very difficult is to have any, any real leverage on Russia. The only thing that the European Union was able to do was suspend talks on the uh, new partnership and cooperation agreement with Russia, and they were only able to suspend them for, for about six weeks. So that is quite weak um, leverage on Russia. So I would say that overall those are the positive things which, which did happen um, over the fall. But unfortunately, it's a real question now how this is going to be followed up in, in the coming months. Um, as, as Salome mentioned, the Russian withdrawal is not complete. 
Um, as far as I'm concerned, Russia has not fulfilled all of its obligations according to the Sarkozy and Medvedev agreements. Um, the agreement is very clear. It says that Russia should withdraw to positions where they were stationed before the start of hostilities. So to positions where they were before the start of hostilities, not they will withdraw to South Ossetia, but to actual positions. And actually now they're holding positions which they did not hold um, previously. They're in areas where they were not previously. And they're also in numbers which are much, more, which are much higher than they were previously. Um, before they, they, were, they were limited to um, about 1,500 Russian troops in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And now it's possible that they have about 3,000 in each of the two entities. So as far, as far as I can see it, no, Russia has not fulfilled all of its obligations. Um, however, the European Union and uh, the member states have not been trying to push Russia um, on ensuring that these obligations are met, except for in a few exceptions. Um, for example, the village of Perevi, which has been um, in the media. There, yes, the European Union has been insisting on the Russians' withdrawal. But as I said, it's not, it's, it's not complete. Um, for example, in Ahagori, which is in this area, and in Kodori, which is in this area, um, these are areas where the Russians were not present before, uh, but they are today. Um, also, the EUMM, the, the monitoring mission, is quite weak. Um, as I said, it is staffed with very experienced people, but really it only has a monitoring mandate. Um, at this point, that is all it's doing, going around and monitoring the situation. Um, it cannot, of course, make any of its own real political statements. What the monitoring mission is doing is writing reports that go back to the member states and then hoping that the states themselves will put um, political pressure on, on Russia or on Georgia, um, whoever is violating the, the agreements. Um, this is not happening sufficiently. So you have this kind of disconnect between the monitoring mission and actually uh, the decision makers in capitals. So basically, there's insufficient political follow-up um, on a lot of the things that the monitoring mission is seeing. Um, and really now, re the, the future is quite unclear. Now that the presidency has shifted from France to the Czech Republic, the Czechs are generally quite interested in the South Caucasus, but obviously they don't have the same kind of international clout as the French did. Um, as, I, as I said before, a lot of this was driven by personalities. It was very much Sarkozy and Kushner who could walk into a room, um, either of EU heads of states or EU foreign ministers, and they could kind of make they could get the unity that they needed to because of the, the status that they had as international pers personalities. Um, this is, of course, much more difficult for the Czechs to do. Um, the Czechs also do not have really the same kind of experience and do not have really the same kind of clear vision. Uh, as the French do. But on the other hand, of course, they're in a much more difficult situation. It's much easier to get a ceasefire signed and to implement that than it is to actually get a peace agreement. And that's probably the biggest problem that we have right now is we don't, there is no peace agreement on the table, there is no peace agreement being discussed, and it's quite unclear, thus, how the situation is going to evolve um, over, the, over the, coming, the coming months. Also, really, the position of the monitoring mission itself. What is this monitoring mission going to do? Um, as we said, it's not operating in South Ossetia. It's not operating in Abkhazia. It's operating only in, Geor in Georgia proper or in territory controlled by Tbilisi. Well, okay, you can go around driving around monitoring IDP return. You can drive around seeing housing being reconstructed. But how long can you actually do that? And I think from the Georgian perspective, it's a real question, how long do you want to have this foreign force monitoring what you're doing? 
Um, the mission mandate is actually quite extensive and it goes beyond monitoring. It goes into things like supporting the rule of law, um, supporting the judiciary. Is this something that this mission is going to do? Is this something that the Georgian authorities are going to want to, want to see it do? I think that's a big question, really. What is this mission going to do, um, really, after the winter months? And is it going to see, start seeing some opposition from the Georgian side? Um, Georgians beginning to feel like, look, we wanted you to be here to help us regain South Ossetia and Abkhazia. You're not doing that, so why are you still here? Um, so a big question about what will actually happen to this monitoring mission. Um, as I said also, so one of the big problems is that the EU has been unable to maintain any leverage on Russia. So the small leverage of the suspension of the PCA is gone, and now you know, we've moved on to different issues, the Ukrainian-Russian gas crisis, and really there, there still is a complete lack of even unity amongst the member states on how to deal with Russia and how to come up with any kind of common strategies in the European Union on how to deal with, with Russia. Um, so the, the EU has been quite powerless vis-a-vis -vis Russia, and now what we're seeing also very specifically is the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, who has been operating in Georgia since 1992. Its mandate um, is being vetoed by the Russian Federation. So there it is a question if through negotiations there might be a way of reversing this or not, but for the time being the mandate is um, vetoed and basically the OSCE staff, which is about, a, I don't know, about 100 people approximately, they have been told to start preparing to pack up their bags to leave um, in the coming weeks. So this would be also quite a new development and an extraordinary development to see one member state of the OSCE veto the continuation of a mission and to see a mission closed down. Um, it would only be comparable to the mission in Chechnya, which was closed down quite some time ago, but perhaps there a little bit more understandably since it was in uh, the Russian Federation itself. To see for a political reason like this, uh, the closure of a mission is, is quite extraordinary. So there's a real risk now that the whole process is going to be um, frozen. Now, this is one thing that um, people who have been looking at South Ossetia and Abkhazia have been uh, criticizing for a long time, is the use of the terminology frozen conflict. Now, these conflicts were, were, were hot already in the early 1990s, and then about 15 years went by when they were supposedly frozen and nothing was happening. Well, that is, not, is probably not the, the, the correct terminology. What one should talk about is frozen negotiations or frozen reconciliation. Well, we risk the same kind of thing happening now, that somehow the situation will be as it is today on the ground, negotiations will petter out or they'll just become symbolic, and really the, the conflicts will not be resolved. So that, that is a, a real problem today. It is particularly problematic because the situation in Georgia is not entirely stable. Um, you still have hawks in the government who are still talking about regaining territorial integrity and regaining South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Even uh, President Saakashvili alluded to that in his New Year's address. Um, you also have an economic situation in Georgia which is extremely um, worrisome where you have um, really key problems in, in economic sectors that were developing previously, be it in construction, um, in banking, in tourism. You have extremely difficult winter and, and follow-up that uh, is likely because of the global economic crisis and its repercussions on Georgia. And finally, you also have a very divided political situation on the ground between uh, the, go the government and the opposition. Um, so there also, 
things could develop in different ways um, throughout the spring, be it um, early elections, be it demonstrations, be it various different options, which I think Sanomi is in better position to explain than me. Um, but basically, so you have also a situation in Georgia itself, which is quite precarious. Of course, the other thing you have is a large number of IDPs um, that have come from this conflict, uh, especially from South Ossetia. You, you also have people who have been unable to return to their homes in South Ossetia. So that, that is another factor for instability. Now, what can we do about this situation? Um, what I'd like to do here is, is propose maybe some ways forward. Now, this is really up just for discussion. Um, it's, it's, it's quite perhaps early to talk about how we move uh, beyond the current stalemate. But um, one thing that, seem, so that seems pretty clear is that the OSC mission is going, to, is going to have to pack up its bags. What's definite is it's not going to be able to work in South Ossetia as it did before the conflict. Now, there's also a big question of what's going to happen to the United Nations mission. There's been a United Nations mission um, in Abkhazia uh, for, for over a decade as well. Um, that mission mandate will be up for review in February, and there also there are signs that Russia might decide to veto that mission also. Um, what that would mean is that you would have no more international presence um, in Abkhazia or in South Ossetia, and you would really only have an EU presence in the territory controlled by Tbilisi. Um, this, this would be um, quite a, uh, an insecure situation um, and would mean that really Russia has, yes, uh, control of, of, of these territories. Now, what can we do under this situation? The, the best option, um, I, would, I believe, would be to have an international presence, of course, that extends to all three areas, to Abkhazia, Georgia, and South Ossetia. Now, it's going to be extremely difficult to get the Russian side to agree to this. Um, it seems very clear the Russians are not going to allow the European Union into South Ossetia and Abkhazia anytime soon. Um, and now, they, as I said, they vetoed the OSCE presence as well. So at this point, the only thing that we could hope for is some kind of UN umbrella on an international presence uh, to, be, to be based uh, throughout Georgia, including in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So that's one way, perhaps, forward some kind of a new UN uh, umbrella. I think the only way you're going to get that, the only way you're going to be able to convince the Russians of that is, first of all, of course, to give a strong role to Russia in this new um, UN mission. And the second thing is to no longer focus on territorial integrity of Georgia. Right now, we have this, this dilemma. EU member states all say that they recognize the territorial integrity of Georgia. They insist on this. Yet, they are not doing anything politically to actually help Georgia regain its territorial integrity. And actually, most of the, the European um, politicians and diplomats that I talk to admit South Ossetia and Abkhazia are gone. We have to live with that new, new reality. So in, even though in their rhetoric they're talking about territorial integrity, in practice, very few um, European leaders or European um, decision makers actually believe in that territorial integrity. So perhaps now it's time to just let go of that facade and say, we have to be more dynamic in our thinking and not focus only on territorial integrity, but we have to leave the options open. What that would mean would be having an international presence which is status neutral, which does not go in there saying, yes, we start on the basis of Georgian territorial integrity, but also does not go in there saying on the, we're going in there on the basis of an independent Abkhazia or an independent South Ossetia, that we're leaving all status options open. Now, again, that will take some convincing um, of the, the Russian side uh, and the Ossetian and the Abkhaz side to get to that point, 
But at this, at this juncture, that's really the only option I see for it. Of course, the Georgians are also, would not be supportive of this either. Um, finally, uh, if we look at what this mission could actually do, it would be not only to, to stabilize the security situation, which is also extremely uh, volatile right now. There are still people being killed. There are still shootings going on, um, especially in territory really um, you know, along the, the line between Abkhazia and uh, Georgia proper and between uh, South Ossetia and Georgia proper. So first you do need a security force, but then this, force could, the, the, this mission could do much more. It could do confidence building. It could try to normalize the situation between the peoples. Um, and really, it, I think what it could most importantly do is actually work with local institutions. Um, help build them up so that they are more ready to protect the rule of law, ready to protect human rights, um, and also ready to assist refugee and IDP return, mainly IDP return, um, and also work on economic development. Um, one of the things that was being discussed before the conflict is actually the potential for economic cooperation, trade, development between territory controlled by Tbilisi and South Ossetia and Abkhazia. This is still um, possible. Now, the, the European uh, Commission in particular has provided in the past large sums of money um, in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, uh, at least 30 million euros. This is something that should continue, um, I believe, which it has been suspended up until now. This is in large part also Georgia's fault. Um, Georgia has passed a new law which is called the Law on Occupied Territories, which basically says that anybody who works with South Ossetia and Abkhazia um, it, it should be prosecuted. So um, this is something that also is completely unacceptable. And um, there should be an understanding in Tbilisi that the only way you're going to get, especially um, Abkhazia, but if you can, South Ossetia out of the grips of Russia, is by also trying to attract them and also trying to work with them and also offering them other alternatives which are beyond Russia. Um, right now, these entities, the only place that they can look is up north. They have to start looking elsewhere, south um, and west. So this is, this is also important that actual programs start again in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Um, and here, even um, the, the, the EU Special Representative, Peter Semnaby, has talked about the importance of, of establishing a European footprint in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And so this, this is, I think, a very important way forward, is to directly, for the European Union, to um, engage uh, with, these, with these two entities. Um, so overall, what should the strategy be? The overall strategy should not be to isolate South Ossetia and Abkhazia, but should be to engage with them, and particularly to engage with the people that are living there, um, and to engage, um, of course, to do this in such a way that eventually also uh, IDPs have a better hope of, of returning home. In the Geneva process, there is a working group that deals with IDPs. Um, there are some small measures that are being discussed there. Obviously, that, that's only a start. Such a thing as family visits um, and visits to graves and so on. These kind of things would have to develop further, but it is, it is a first start um, for the IDPs. Now, what I just proposed, I think, is, is somewhat, of course, idealistic in the sense that the main problem within the European Union is that there's a real question if there is real political will to continue to engage on this conflict. Um, Again, there's this feeling of kind of hopelessness in the European Union that there is no leverage on Russia, there is no way to actually get Russia to, to move uh, in, in, the, in the area. 
Um, of course, also, there, there is this, as I said, this dilemma amongst member states. Do we focus on territorial integrity or do we let that go? That's very difficult for member states as well. Um, and then, of course, there, there's the financial obstacles that, uh, that, are, that, are, that could be linked to such a big project, which would be quite costly. Um, and overall, uh, there is, of course, the continual pessimism uh, in, amongst the e within the EU about the potential for CFSP and for, for, um, well, for common foreign policy to actually move forward. And so this kind of a project, of course, would in some ways mean translating some, some of the lessons from the Balkans and bringing them to the Caucasus. And this is something which would be um, quite, is still quite unclear whether or not you have enough willingness amongst the member states uh, to do this. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sabine. Well, we have 30 minutes uh, or so for questions. Uh, there are people with microphones uh, in the hall, and they will go around. Please, um, if you could introduce yourself very briefly when you're, uh, uh, before you ask your question. Yes. Thanks. Um, James Skidmore. I'm just interested in what's driving this from the Russian point of view. Um, I'm just wondering whether the international, the global crisis is going to mean that Putin's going to face a lot more domestic trouble at home. And do you think this is going to make him more aggressive abroad? Okay, we'll take two or three at once. Yes, it's back here. Hello. Hi, uh, Mark Sloboda. Um, could you tell me if you believe that the South Ossetian and Abkhazian people, uh, if you believe they are a uh, historically and culturally distinct ethnic group worthy of the right of self-determination, and whether you believe that after um, the events that occurred in Sinkvale, basically a government uh, wishing to represent those people shelling the city, um, with grad rocket launchers, that if you believe that uh, any normalization of relations between the South Ossetian people and Georgia is possible. Okay, thank you. And one more over here. My name is Dick Jenkins. Uh, it's been alluded to by both speakers. Sorry, could you speak up? It's been alluded to by both speakers, but shouldn't the Europeans bang Jordan heads together and get them to make a sensible policy towards Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And it goes back further than the war, because even in the 1990s and the early 2000s, Georgia did not have a sensible policy. It was one of uh, exclusion and, and, um, and almost an embargo, which turned, and the passport issue was going on long before 2001, when I left Georgia. Uh, it was going on since 1998, which is when, in fact, Georgia, with its invasion of, of Ghali, uh, lost control of the process. So I think the West should really deal with Mr. Saakashvili first and, and make the Jordans have a more sensible policy. I don't condone what Russia did, but it seems to me the key is Georgia. And if you mentioned 30 million euros for Abkhazia, that's peanuts if you compare it to the 4.5 billion for, for Georgia. And unless the European Union controls that money and puts conditions on it, it will be completely wasted. 
try to to answer those first questions. I have some uh, difficulties with the first one. Um, whether Putin having problems at home is going to be more or less aggressive abroad. Uh, first of all, it's very difficult to, uh, to see whether the problems that Russia is facing, the, uh, which are mostly economic problems, uh, have uh, any translation in terms of political uh, problems for the regime itself. Uh, there are no signs of that for the time being. Uh, what is clear is that uh, war uh, in Russia is something that is quite popular. Uh, and uh, the uh, aggression uh, in, uh, against Georgia has made Putin more popular rather than less. Uh, so if anything, he uh, should uh, think that it's uh, to his advantage to continue in the same venue. Uh, whether Abkhazians uh, and South Ossetian uh, uh, warrant self-determination, well, it's, uh, it's a very long story in which there are historical arguments for, uh, for everyone. Uh, Abkhazians uh, have clearly uh, a long standing uh, in the region, in Abkhazia. Uh, they have a language. Uh, there is a complicated history which two parts to Abkhazia, one that was uh, speaking Georgian Orthodox, the other Muslim, uh, and uh, made of populations that came from north. Uh, but for the uh, last period uh, and for some time, uh, there indeed has been uh, Abkhazia which uh, can claim uh, to have uh, its own uh, culture, identity defended. Now the question is not so much self-determination because that's uh, uh, an illusion. The question is, uh, where is Abkhazian identity better defended, uh, whether it's uh, together with Georgia, uh, within uh, a new status with Georgia, or uh, in uh, and together with Russia? Uh, there, there is some doubt, and those doubts, in fact, are today expressed by the Abkhazians themselves, uh, that uh, what happens to 45,000 Abkhazians uh, if they have uh, to uh, deal directly and to remain one-on-one -on -one, uh, with Moscow. And that's something that we have done to them. Uh, so the responsibility for that is also uh, with Georgia. Uh, we uh, should have done better, uh, and there I agree with uh, uh, the next uh, question, we should have done better in terms of uh, looking for solutions uh, to the separatist uh, issue, even if we knew that the separatist issue was uh, provoked, uh, supported, developed uh, in all ways by, uh, by Russia, uh, there was still a legitimate claim and there were means uh, for Georgia uh, to have dealt better with this uh, situation than it did. Uh, I also agree on the fact that the uh, policy that was Sheranadze's policy for a long time of sanctions uh, was a very wrong policy because it took out of the hands of the Tbilisi uh, governments the only instrument it had uh, to really solve the situation, which was uh, contacts, uh, uh, common economic projects, uh, inclusiveness rather than exclusion. Uh, 
for what reason uh, did uh, Shevardnadze go on this uh, road and was in fact followed by uh, also the Saakashvili government that was at the beginning speaking on and of peaceful solutions was supported in that by the Americans that were very active at a certain point in time but then it didn't lead anywhere and we continued with this embargo policy that was clearly uh, not uh, giving uh, any results. 4,000 Ossetians, the question is much more discutable because uh, it's clearly an artificial creation uh, of the uh, Soviet time. That doesn't mean that there is not a South Ossetian uh, population that lives in South Ossetia and that uh, should uh, be uh, given uh, the rights. But if one looks uh, frankly to the situation, uh, the place where the South Ossetians had some rights uh, was Georgia. That was a place where schools were teaching Ossetian, which is not the case in North Ossetia. Uh, that was a place where they had uh, very important participation to the local administration before uh, today's situation. Uh, so there could have been uh, a more, more easy solution uh, to the South Ossetia question. Uh, and in fact, uh, that we were almost there. When I arrived in Georgia uh, in 2000, at the end of 2003 and beginning of 2004, uh, the communications uh, with uh, South Ossetia were very open. You could go uh, freely to Trin Valley. People from Trin Valley were coming to Tbilisi for everything, for the hospitals, for university, uh, and families were mixed. Uh, the part of uh, today's big South Ossetia that was occupied uh, by Georgian villages or mixed villages, all of that was uh, coexisting uh, quite uh, normally, I would say. Uh, and uh, there, there is a question mark uh, because everything started deteriorating when uh, the decision was taken to close down the Ergneti market that was at the administrative border between uh, South Ossetia and Georgia, uh, which was a decision taken early on by the Saakashvili government and was done with military means. And that cut the links that existed uh, with this region and that were going in the very right direction of uh, reunifying uh, populations, if not uh, territories. Uh, and there, from then on, uh, the situation went into more and more tension, more and more separation uh, up to the point uh, of this last war. So I think that it's a history of missed, missed, missed chances uh, missed opportunities uh, that we have and in which clearly Russia has made very good use uh, of all the instruments uh, it has uh, and exploited them very uh, forcefully. Okay. I mean, maybe it's better to just continue with the questions because yes. I don't have any fundamental okay. differences. In the middle here. Uh, Dr. Melua, uh, do you think the uh, recognition and support uh, of Kosovo by the European Union played uh, any role in the present situation in the Caucasus? And can you could you explain the difference uh, or similarities or difference and similarities in the situation in Kosovo, Serbia, and uh, Georgia, Abkhazia, and Ossetia? Okay, because uh, so far as I had, this talking about. There is no any similarities at all in situation uh, in Kosovo and in Georgia. 
Okay, thank you very much. Uh, here, Roy. Here, Roy. Uh, thank you. Uh, do you believe that the, the bilateral treaty on strategic partnership and security matters between Georgia and United States signed last month uh, would offer Georgia any more the kind of deterrence against uh, Russia in some future Russia-Georgia crisis uh, of the kind that Georgia clearly has been striving for through its effort at NATO accession? Or do you think that treaty would be rather more like the 2003 uh, treaty, the rather more limited treaty between the United States and Georgia, which uh, Russia clearly disregarded in the latest crisis? Okay. Over here. Uh, I have a, a son who's in the European Union monitoring mission, and I'd like to know uh, whether people think it's genuinely making a positive contribution, or is it just a bit of window dressing? Okay, I'll take one more. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm a graduate of the European Institute, and I have a question to uh, Dr. Fraser. Um, you mentioned the weak leverage of the European Union, and I would like to ask you, um, should the EU would uh, diversify its energy sources and have a more credible uh, military power, you think it would have uh, more effective uh, leverage over Russia? Okay, so yeah, I think you should have first crack at this. Okay, um, I'll take a couple of these. Concerning the, the link between Kosovo and um, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, um, of course, the Russians are the ones who have made this link. Um, I mean, Putin, Medvedev, Lavrov, they're the ones who always very clearly stated, even before Kosovo um, declared independence, that if Kosovo declared independence, there would be ramifications in the South Caucasus. So this is a link that I think was created um, by, by uh, the Russian leadership and that does not necessarily have any validity. Um, really, each case needs to be determined on its own. Nobody is running around right now saying Somaliland should be recognized um, just because of Kosovo, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia. So really, um, each case is very different. And I think that the Russians know that, and we're just being extremely political um, in making this link. Of course, nobody went around saying, oh, well, now we're going to recognize Chechnya either. So it, it, is, it is very clear that the Russian analogies are, are very limited. The other thing that I wanted to say is that Kosovo is um, fundamentally different because Kosovo has gone through a process since 1999, a process where it has had a UN administration, where it has had, had to meet certain standards. Um, it had a negotiations process in 2007 between um, Kosovo and Belgrade, which was uh, mediated by, by the Troika. And finally, um, it, it has reached where it is today. Now, when, when I was giving my examples of what could happen for the future in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, I was not saying that it would be impossible for one day uh, these entities to be recognized. But what I, what I would like to emphasize is that any kind of recognition has to first go through some kind of process where basic human rights are, made, are, are, are upheld, where uh, return of IDPs is possible, um, and so on. So really, I think it's way too premature to make any linkage between South Ossetia, Abkhazia, um, and Kosovo. Concerning the issue of, of the diversification of energy sources, yes, um, it is very clear 
when you were looking at the debates going on in EU uh, capitals in, in the fall, energy was one of the things that was behind everybody's minds. So if you look at which states tended to be more lenient um, to Russia and which states tended to be more hardline, energy played a big role. So obviously the obvious one that everybody thinks about is Germany um, being much more tolerant of, of certain things that Russia was doing because of its dependence on, on Russian um, gas. Now, I think, of course, the Ukrainian situation now in, in the past few weeks has really galvanized um, European Union to try to think about diversifying its energy resources. Now, this is, of course, going to be extremely difficult because how do you diversify? Um, the, the big issue that everybody's talking about is the Nabucco, Nabucco gas um, line, but is there enough gas to fill Nabucco? Um, you know, are the Turkmen's going to sell to the Europeans instead of selling to the Russians? So there, there's still, it's going to be a very big challenge for the European Union to um, come up with a common policy on energy, but I think there is a realization throughout the European Union that this is more necessary than ever before. Okay. Would you like to address the question about the treaty? Yes. Uh, the bilateral treaty that was signed uh, with the United States uh, just uh, at the end of the Bush administration, I think, was purely a propaganda act by the uh, Georgian authorities. Uh, I remember that when I was a foreign minister at one point in time, uh, the uh, Ukrainians uh, got with uh, NATO the intensive dialogue, uh, which we didn't need at all because we were on a different path to, on the, with IPAP uh, on NATO integration. But at that point, uh, Saakashvili started uh, screaming that he wanted the same thing that the Ukrainian got. Uh, and so finally we went through the intensive dialogue, which uh, in fact didn't add anything to Georgian's past to, towards NATO. Uh, I think the same thing happened now, uh, that the Ukraine uh, had signed this uh, specific charter with the United States, uh, at a point in time when Saakashvili felt that he needed something, uh, and he started screaming probably to say, well, I want the same for me, and got it from his uh, American friends and his personal friends in the last uh, administration. Uh, it has no substance, uh, and uh, as I said at, at the time of the signature, I would have much preferred one sentence in the speech of Obama uh, on the question that exists today, uh, and which is a question of uh, uh, Georgia's security, which uh, clearly there is ambiguity after what has happened uh, during the war of August and the lack of American reaction. Uh, there is some um, gray line uh, instead of a red line, which had gradually emerged over Georgian independence, and there I'm not talking about the zones or conflict zones or the separatist regions, but about the fact of Georgian independence. Uh, there was a very clear red line set by the American administration. I think that that red line has become blurred uh, after the August uh, war. Uh, and when I was in Washington in December, clearly uh, in uh, and among the advisors, uh, the people that are working for the new administration, there was a concern of something has to be done to restore the clarity of this red line over uh, the fact of Georgian independence. Uh, this treaty is not uh, exactly doing that. 
Uh, and uh, it would have been much better that something would have been done by the new incoming uh, administration to that effect. Uh, and I think that this need remains uh, and uh, somebody should work very clearly with the new administration uh, to get their engagement uh, uh, for uh, Georgian independence uh, that should accompany any uh, renewed talks which probably will happen with, uh, with Russia uh, very early on. Uh, for the EU military mission, uh, and I just wanted to add that uh, to what has been said by, uh, by Sabine, uh, I think together with all the questions that can be asked about efficiency, about what it means, about the fact that it's really soft, soft military mission, uh, there is a very big uh, role that the EU military mission has uh, today in Georgia and that uh, unfortunately the Georgian authorities do not uh, recognize enough, uh, which uh, is that uh, in fact it is a defeat to one of the aims of the Russian uh, aggression which was uh, maybe implicitly and without even maybe uh, recognizing it to themselves to restore in a way Russia's exclusivity in the region. Well, the fact of the EU mission being there uh, is the, the EU presence, uh, and that is very important, even if it doesn't do anything. At the time when the OSC is going away, uh, when the uh, UN mission might close down, uh, the presence of the EU is something that is a very strong political position uh, that whatever the conflict zones, wherever and whatever happens to uh, Georgia's territorial uh, integrity, uh, the uh, Georgian independence is central to the European Union and we are there to uh, say that and to say it very loudly to, to Russia. And I think that it's something that uh, the EU uh, should not be doing like Mr. Jourdain without knowing it, but should be very aware of the importance that this uh, mission uh, has uh, politically. And one last thing that I want to add uh, on the uh, similarities with, uh, or not similarities with Kosovo. Uh, I was tempted at one point, uh, and having listened to you now, uh, I might still be tempted to make the uh, parallel with, uh, with Kosovo but to make it uh, to the end. If there is a parallel with Kosovo, uh, then uh, let's have uh, the uh, international protection of the UN over those two entities. Let's uh, forget for a while, and I, I think that the uh, uh, direction is that, uh, not to recognize that territorial integrity is infringed, uh, but to uh, put that into parentheses. And meanwhile, uh, let's have an international UN administration uh, like in Kosovo and let's have something that is even more important, uh, the return of the refugees. Because the one very big distinction between Kosovo and uh, uh, Abkhazia is that in Abkhazia the original population was 300,000 uh, Georgians and uh, 50, 55 uh, Abkhazians. So let's restore this uh, demography under an international administration and then let's see uh, what a referendum can give uh, as a result because after all, there was a referendum on Georgian independence that was held in Abkhazia and held in South Ossetia, which is an argument that is really used by Georgian authorities. I don't know why, uh, because the population there 
uh, Abkhazians as well as Georgians took part in this referendum uh, and it was favorable for Georgian independence. So uh, there are many things to be used in those precedents both ways. <laughs> Um, Sabine, will you address the question about the credibility of EU power, which I think was the last question asked? Was it? Yes, but you, you asked a question about <coughs> EU's military credibility? Yes. Oh, you've answered yeah. it? Because it was okay. mainly energy. <laughs> okay. Um, I'd like to ask a question, and then we'll take a few more from the floor. It just follows on from something that was asked in the first batch of questions about um, right to self-determination and the... Um, in a sense, I know many people would say that that the Georgian state has lost the consent of the governed, or at least of large sections of the um, populations in Abkhazia and South Ossetia to be governed by Georgia. And I just wonder whether that whether you think that that is an irretrievable position. And if it isn't an irretrievable position, because as, as Sabine was saying earlier, many of uh, the policymakers within the EU tacitly, informally, now accept that these territories are lost to Georgia. Um, and maybe it's just a question of getting the Georgians to recognize that reality. Or do you think that there is something concrete that a Georgian administration not sarcastically, perhaps yourself, somebody else, can do to actually win back the consent of the Abkhazians and South Ossetians that, who, who don't want to be part of Georgia. No, uh, let's have some more questions from the floor. Uh, here. President Yushchenko said that the negotiations about the NATO membership was postponed because of the August war. And uh, I want Mr. Zubashvili, Mr. Zubashvili, from you to hear about these negotiations between Georgia and NATO. Um, what is perspective of Georgia to be the member of this alliance? Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Maybe from this side. Yes. In here. Andrei Novak. Um, my question uh, is about um, if. Georgia was hoping to um, get closer to NATO and the European Union. Um, why um, did it, uh, as was mentioned earlier, shell Tsinvali and um, attack civilian targets, which might explain the uh, relative silence of the American side? Um, because I don't think it helps entering NATO um, to start off with uh, breaking the laws of war. Uh, I would ask for the, for the best guess the, the, the speakers have. Um, hello, my name is. Uh, my question is for Ms. Surabishvili. Surabishvili, sorry. Um, my question is: You were um, rather critical of Mr. Sakashvili for his provocative stance against Russia this summer, and you were also um, sorry, uh, criti critical of his. Uh, of his recent deal with, uh, with Russia over the dam. So my question is, as an opposition member, um, do you think he is too close or too aggressive with Russia? And my other question, if I may, is um, what is your perception, if any, of Mr. Iraq de Lasagna? What did you say? Okay, I think we... Did you get that last bit? No? Sorry, could you just repeat the last sentence? What is your perception, if any, of Mr. Iraq de Alassane? Okay. 
think we should we should accept that because we're very close to our finish point. I'm afraid we'll we'll have to take some an, some answers and and leave it at that. Thank you very much for your patience. Uh, I will start with your uh, question: Is there something that can be done uh, to reconcile? Uh, with uh, Abkhazians and South Ossetians, um, or uh, is it something that should be taken as it is and, and forget about it? Um, I think that there are things that can be done uh, which uh, were not uh, tried, which is to look for uh, the alternative uh, to uh, the policy of sanctions and isolation uh, and not pushing Abkhazians in a one-to-one -one relation with, uh, with Russia. Uh, but the first thing that has to be done, uh, and the one on which I think the international community did not enough uh, and should now focus, uh, instead of focusing on uh, status questions or future, is the question of refugees. Because the only uh, way and time when uh, some form of independence would be acceptable to any Georgian uh, leadership will be when those uh, IDPs that were thrown out of Abkhazia have a right to return and there be part to the decision of what Abkhazia should become. Uh, that's the key point. Uh, so yes, the Abkhazians can decide as any other uh, people around the world can decide whether they want to live in an independent state or together with Georgia, uh, but it's not one part of the population that can make that decision. It should be the whole part of the population. Uh, and again, there are 300,000 Georgians waiting to uh, go back to Abkhazia uh, and that have not been allowed to uh, to do so. And the same is true of, of South Ossetia, of course. In that case, I was you, I wouldn't up for UN administration. <laughs> Because if you look at Kosovo, <laughs> you're, Kosovo not gonna, it was you're not going to get too many refugees returned. <laughs> that was the reverse. I mean, the, the figures are exactly the reverse. Uh, it was very clear that Kosovo was mostly uh, Kosovar uh, population and, uh, and minority of Serbians. In the case of Abkhazia, there was, previous to the war, a very large majority of, uh, of Georgian population. Uh, on uh, Georgia NATO what prospects, uh, first of all it should be clear that uh, Georgia itself uh, had uh, uh, done everything that was possible to uh, forego those prospects once uh, with the uh, November 7 repression uh, of 2007. Uh, it was a first blow to the uh, NATO prospects uh, of Georgia, and the second one was clearly uh, this uh, August 7th uh, war. Uh, twice uh, it was a decision made by the Georgian authorities that uh, put us uh, away from the main uh, road towards uh, NATO uh, integration. So the prospects today, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I tend to dissent with the idea that what the Russians have done uh, was only because they wanted to prevent NATO, because they just have to let uh, Saakashvili continue and, and Georgia would have had anyway very big difficulties to get into uh, into NATO because nothing was done in terms of internal either military reforms or political reforms. So the prospects for NATO are further away. Uh, my uh, sense is that Georgia should continue uh, under this government or another government to do whatever is uh, possible to be done internally uh, in terms of reforms because the process for itself uh, is very useful for Georgia. Uh, and one has to be ready for the time when uh, the prospect will become again uh, something that uh, will be feasible. 
And clearly, uh, the shelling of Tsrin Valley was not in line with the, the idea of joining uh, NATO, uh, although it should be uh, clear that, uh, and there again, the idea of the, of the deal is somewhere around, uh, that Tsrin Valley was emptied of the civilian population uh, the two, uh, three days before uh, the uh, Georgian aggression, uh, something that uh, Georgians should have known, probably knew, uh, so there were, yes, civilian victims, but not uh, in the numbers that uh, were claimed by the Russians at the beginning, and in fact the Russians themselves changed the, the figures afterwards. But that doesn't change uh, the responsibility for having uh, shelled Trin Valley, which means that one shells uh, their, its own uh, territory. And whether uh, I think that Saakashvili is too close or too aggressive, that's exactly what I'm complaining about. It's the fact that it's not coherent uh, to be uh, both aggressive and at the same time selling the whole of the, of the country. Uh, I think that there is inconsistency uh, and that we would have fared much better uh, over the past years if Georgia had been less rhetorically aggressive towards uh, Russia, uh, but more uh, defensive of its own uh, interests and uh, firmer on the defense of its own interests. That doesn't uh, need uh, and take insults and uh, aggressive rhetoric. Sabine, would you like to address the NATO issue? Um, I'd like to address the NATO issue and actually your question a little bit okay. as well. Um, just on the, on the NATO side, I would think, I mean, here quite, quite, quite clearly, what ended up happening at the last at the last meeting is that the countries that were in favor of NATO membership for Georgia um, already, the Bucharest summit in March, were just as in favor as they had been in March. Those countries that dissented and that were against NATO membership. Um, were also the same and even more than they were in the past. So I think that there what you see is a NATO alliance which is more divided than it was in the past about the issue of Georgian membership. And that's why you got a solution like you did, which is, is kind of a fudge, which is kind of a map w under a different name. Um, so not wanting to take the political heat of using the term map, but still um, reaffirming in some ways the, the potential for Georgia to become uh, an alliance member. Of course, all this conflict also really brings into question what is NATO's future? Um, what should NATO be? Should it be a defensive alliance? What, ha what would have happened if Georgia had already been a member? How would have Article 5 applied? Um, really very fundamental questions also about NATO-Russia relations. Where should those be going? Is that part of the, the whole source of the problem of the conflict in the South Caucasus? So I think you know, a lot of just kind of theoretical but also practical questions about where, where NATO is going and what NATO should be. Um, about the question of, of right, right to self-determination, I mean, yes, it, it is quite clear that, um, that there is now a complete lack of credibility of the Georgian government in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, but this already existed before, but now it's worse than ever before. Um, and one could question, one could use the terminology, wonder whether or not Georgia has some ways lost the moral authority to govern in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Um, I think any way you look at it, it's, confidence building is possible, but it's going to take a very long time. That's been another of the problems with the, with the Georgian administration, is that they wanted to resolve these conflicts immediately. I remember at the very beginning, right after the revolution in 2004, um, Saakashvili thought that South Ossetia was going to be resolved in three months. Um, it's clear that these are not going to be resolved uh, for, for many, many years to come. It's going to take a long time to build trust. 
Um, but one thing I'd like to, to kind of maybe perhaps disagree a little bit um, with Salome, it has to do with the issue of IDP return. Um, I agree it is a fundamental issue, and I agree that it is important for all people's rights to be guaranteed, be they Georgians or Setians or Abhas. But one thing that has happened over the past decade is that you've had a return of ethnic Georgians to Abhasia. Um, the numbers diverge. They could be anywhere from 30 to, to 60,000 ethnic Georgians who have returned to Abhasia um, and who live in a, in a district called Gali. Those people remarkably um, did not leave during the conflict this summer. So this is one of the positive things that has happened is that those people were able to remain in their homes. Um, this is something that the Georgian government should acknowledge. Um, the Georgian government should, should recognize that those people are living there and that they've had the right to return. Yes, of course, there are violations, there are problems um, with, with uh, those populations living there, but they have been able to regain their homes. Um, so I think that that would also be a, a very first step for the Georgian government to recognize that return and then to move forward with the return of others, which of course is also essential. Well, I think we will have to close proceedings on that point. Uh, let us thank both our speakers for a very interesting, articulate, frank uh, discussion. Whether Georgia, whether Russia is, is off the hook, Europe has let Russia off the hook, I don't think we've answered that question, but we've asked Was a lot of other more on? interesting questions. Was it ever on? Let's thank our speaker. <laughs>